Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 108, Fuel Transformation, about practical research on fuels in the 1990s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Since the 1980s and 1990s and down to the present day, we continue to rely on fossil fuels for much of our comfort and economy. A particularly useful fuel is simple methane gas with the molecular formula CH4. It's a gas at typical temperatures and pressures and is the primary component of what we call natural gas, piped into many homes to use for cooking or heating water. To get 16 grams of methane, you need to store 22.4 liters of methane at typical temperatures and pressures. That's a pretty large volume for a small weight of gas, so wouldn't it be great if we could do a chemical transformation on that methane and turn it into a similar chemical, but in liquid form? Liquids are generally much more compact for a particular weight of compound. Liquids are a lot easier than gases to transport and store. Imagine that you have gas in a distant, isolated place. So, this question, how to make a gaseous fuel like methane or ethane or propane into a liquid was, and still is, an important chemistry-related question for laboratories to answer. The most obvious answer is, well, refrigerate the methane. Unfortunately, methane's boiling point, the temperature at which it transforms from gas into liquid, is minus 162 degrees Celsius. That means you need to constantly refrigerate the container to a terrifically cold temperature while storing and transporting it. Refrigerators use a lot of equipment and coolant and energy to pull heat out of materials, so that kind of disposes of any efficiency you'd gain. The second idea is to compress it. Liquefied methane is certainly available, but again, you need heavy tanks and you still need to chill it under minus 82 degrees Celsius. Again, the equipment needed removes the advantage of a smaller volume. So instead of changing the physical phase of the gas to a liquid, can we do a chemical reaction to change the gas into a liquid at typical temperatures and pressures? And this is where a lot of chemical efforts were and have been invested. One idea is to convert methane into methanol, that is, sticking an oxygen atom between the central carbon atom and one of the hydrogen atoms. It turns out that methanol, with just an extra oxygen atom compared to methane, has a boiling point way up at 65 degrees Celsius, so it's nicely liquid at normal temperature and pressure. The standard way for many, many years to transform fuel gases to fuel liquids is three steps. One, reform the gas into what chemists call synthesis gas, 
This is a mixture of gases hydrogen, H2, carbon monoxide, CO, carbon dioxide, CO2, plus leftover methane. 2. Do a Fischer-Tropsch conversion of carbon monoxide plus hydrogen to hydrocarbons with longer chains of carbons. This automatically makes them liquid too. 3. Refine these vague impure hydrocarbons by separation into different chain lengths. The Fischer-Tropsch process was invented by German chemists Franz Fischer and Hans Tropsch in 1925 and is a mainstay of petrochemical processes. You need to heat up your synthesis gas to 2 or 300 degrees Celsius, add a metal acting as a catalyst, perhaps squeeze it down, and, if we remember Le Chatelier's principle, the change in conditions in the vessel make the conversion process to hydrocarbons easier. Again, this scheme requires a fair amount of energy and equipment, plus technical know-how to work right. Can chemists devise an easier scheme, perhaps in a single step in a single container? The challenge is that the CH bond in methane is pretty strong, but the CH bond in methanol is weaker. This means that, without all the squeezing and multiple steps, it's pretty tough to do. You're oxidizing methane into methanol by adding an oxygen atom, but adding oxygen to a reaction mixture of methane going to methanol, the oxygen atom will oxidize the methanol right into carbon dioxide gas, burning it while you're trying to form it. So this episode revolves a lot around organometallic chemistry, chemistry of carbon-to-metal bonds, and what you might think of as stereotypical chemistry lab equipment with chemicals, fume hoods, and instruments to determine what reaction happens, unlike my surface chemistry research. I chose this as a sample of what organometallic chemistry was doing in the 1990s because a part of this problem was my wife's doctoral dissertation. The thought was to use metals as catalysts, lowering the activation energy for reacting the CH bond. There was evidence that platinum metal worked, so that was the metal used in her experiments. The metal can insert itself between the carbon and hydrogen atoms. Or the metal can grab onto the carbon, making a carbon-metal anion, kicking off a hydrogen cation. So, let's see how experiments were done. You're reacting hydrocarbon gases with other things. To contain these gases safely, while they react, you put everything into a heavy-walled stainless steel canister. We've talked about these already as a calorimeter, a device to measure heat output. But here, the canister is merely used as a holder, a steel flask, if you will, with gas inlets. Inside the canister, you put a small glass flask with a narrow neck but flared at the top like a funnel. You put a small amount of platinum salts into the flask, plus a bit of water to dissolve them. You flow a high pressure of nitrogen plus your hydrocarbon gas, say, propane, into the canister and seal everything up. 
Then you stick the canister into a special heating bath filled with oil to nicely transfer heat into the canister and reactants. You ramp the temperature up to 120 degrees Celsius and keep the canister hot for three days to let any reaction run. Everything is kept inside a fume hood. Then you open up the steel canister, take your product out of the tiny flask inside, and transfer a bit to a special long, narrow glass tube, along with some deuterated water, also called heavy water. Recall that heavy water has heavy hydrogen atoms with one extra neutron each instead of regular water. Why deuterated water? Because the long tube you use is designed to slide into a chamber of a nuclear magnetic resonance spectrometer. Remember that NMR uses magnetic fields to flip the nuclei of the atoms around. By controlling the magnetic fields correctly, you can flip different nuclei as you scan through the magnetic fields. The readout you get. Shows special peaks for each nucleus in the molecule you study. This NMR technique only works for atoms with odd numbers of protons plus neutrons in their nuclei. Heavy water with an extra neutron in each hydrogen atom has an even number of nucleons, so it doesn't feel the magnetic field inside the NMR machine. Heavy water is a transparent solvent to your sample. If you like, in this experiment, you are examining all the regular hydrogen atoms around your hydrocarbon product. Around the molecule, different atoms feel the external magnetic field in different ways. You can figure out the position of the hydrogen atoms in your molecule based on how much field you apply before the nuclei flip, and also how the peaks split into subpeaks. To figure out how many of each type of hydrogen atom are in what position, you determine the area under each cluster of peaks. If you learned calculus, here you are integrating under the cluster of peaks. A larger area means more hydrogen atoms of that type. Now we already know that hydrocarbon gases don't want a hydrogen atom pulled off and an OH group stuck on in a single step. Why that is exactly was unclear, except that the bond strengths are unfavorable to this method. In a way, it harkens back to my recent episode on chemical philosophy. If you insist that bonds are electron pairs localized between two atoms and ignore the quantum view that the electrons rearrange themselves around the entire molecule, here's an example of how bond theory can get you into a bit of trouble. Thus, part of my wife's research examined similar molecules to hydrocarbons. They are similar to hydrocarbons in that they have functional groups, non-hydrogen atoms or clusters of atoms attached to the molecules. If you can't get hydrocarbons alone to convert to alcohols, then maybe some similar compound will do it, and you can learn precisely why. So, for example, she tried using iodoalkanes. That is hydrocarbons with an iodine atom attached instead of one of the hydrogen atoms. She tried using carboxylic acids, which have a COOH group, the acid bit, attached to the hydrocarbons. She tried 
alcohols, the ultimate product molecule desired here. She tried phosphonic acids, which have a PO3H2 group instead of a hydrogen. She tried sulfonic acids, which have an SO3H group instead of a hydrogen. The end result of these experiments was that you can get a CH bond to convert to a COH bond, but only far away, the other end of the molecule, to the functional group. Apparently, the hydrocarbon molecule curls up into a ring during the reaction, what chemists call a cyclic intermediate, and then breaks apart again. While doing all of these experiments, specifically reacting ethane gas with a platinum salt, she ended up with a pale yellow solution and a bit of white solid. Her professor was all excited and said, okay, what is that white stuff? So one chapter of her dissertation described the experiments to figure out what this new white compound was. She did proton NMR because the compound contained many hydrogen atoms, and discovered there were only four types of hydrogens in the molecule. Then she did another type of NMR called carbon-13 NMR because the compound contained multiple carbon atoms. Carbon-13 is a non-radioactive isotope of carbon, but instead of the typical six protons and six neutrons found in common carbon-12, Carbon-13 has six protons and seven neutrons. We know that a nucleus with even numbers of nucleons, like carbon-12, is invisible to the NMR process, but a nucleus with odd numbers of nucleons, like carbon-13, is visible. Overall, carbon-12 is about 99% of all carbon atoms, while carbon-13 is about 1%. So if you get the right sensitivity on your NMR instrument, you can also detect the carbon-13 atoms flipping around. She detected only three carbon-13 peaks, indicating only three positions of the carbon atoms. To clinch the structure, she sent off a crystal of this mysterious product to another laboratory with X-ray crystallography equipment, and that lab shot X-rays at the crystal, detected the positions of the X-rays diffracting off the crystal, and back-calculated the molecular structure. The result was an organometallic molecule, a square of two platinum atoms diagonally across from two chlorine atoms. To each platinum atom was attached one ethylene molecule and one ethyl group. It's a platinum-ethyl-ethylene complex, whose precise name I don't know, but someone well-versed in organometallic nomenclature can tell me. Another part of her dissertation experimented with a particularly nasty acid called fuming sulfuric acid, also called oleum. It's a valuable reagent in chemical processes, containing little to no water, but rather is a mixture of sulfuric acid and sulfur trioxide. Her research group had recently discovered a published paper describing how another laboratory converted methane to methyl sulfate using fuming sulfuric acid plus a mercury catalyst. 
this was certainly activating the CH bond into something else, but not into methanol. Other people in her own group found that other metals like palladium, potassium, and cerium also did the trick, which is a good thing because mercury, as we already know, is toxic. My wife's work studied the mechanism by which these metals usually operate on methane to make methyl sulfonate. Results showed that this was via radicals. That is, for potassium persulfate as the catalyst, the potassium compound breaks apart into two KSO4 radicals. A radical has an unpaired electron, so it's highly reactive. A KSO4 radical then attacks a methane molecule and pulls off a hydrogen. This is activating the CH bond on methane, leaving a methyl CH3 radical. That methyl with an unpaired electron then goes for a sulfur trioxide molecule to make methyl sulfonyloxyl radical. The methyl sulfonyloxyl radical then attacks another methane molecule to make methane sulfonic acid and a methyl radical. Thus, as for other reactions in earlier episodes, this is a chain reaction, continually chewing up methane molecules into methane sulfonic acid. The product isn't methanol, but it is something else than methane. It turns out that palladium metal doesn't seem to react this way with radicals. Instead of the methane sulfonic acid products, you get methyl sulfate. Apparently, palladium uses a different mechanism. As you can see, this research was a piece of the how do we make methane into methanol in one easy step question and did not provide a full answer. To this day, there is no obvious solution to the question. And this is how science operates. Usually one bit of research generates a partial answer and another research group takes that answer, runs with it, and adds another partial answer. I chose this dissertation to discuss for two reasons. One is that it illuminates how organometallic chemistry was going in the 1990s. Two is that it links so many topics we've already discussed in previous episodes to show how chemistry is a unified field. There is the environment and mercury toxicity. There is safety in using dangerous chemicals under a fume hood in a stainless steel can. There is chemical philosophy and what is a bond. There is radical chemistry. There are organometallic complexes. There is nuclear magnetic resonance. There is discussion of hydrocarbons and fuels. There is talk about isotopes. Among the interesting and humorous anecdotes I learned is that the NMR instrument at the time dated to the 1970s with 8-inch, 20-centimeter floppy disks to store data already out of date by the 1990s. To clean out glassware from all these platinum compounds, my wife had to use aqua regia, that strong acid discovered by the Arab alchemists, and it ate up one of her lab coats to shreds. And sometimes the reactions in the tiny glass vessels inside the steel cans went crazy and exploded inside the canisters. The lab team informally gave 
bombardier pins to grad students who exploded their samples. Finally, I want to thank my wife for helping me understand her dissertation. Most dissertations include the obvious, but not the unsaid macro reasons for research. She has also read over my script for this episode and made corrections. In our next episode, we take a look at an outgrowth of chemistry into the culinary world, molecular gastronomy. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.